All my friends are finding new beliefs, and I am finding it harder and harder to keep track of the new gods and the new loves and the old gods and the old loves, and the days have daggers and the mirrors motives and the planets turning faster and faster in the blackness and my nights and my doubts and my friends, my beautiful, credible friends. Hi, I'm Christian Wyman, and I'm a poet and professor of religion and literature at Yale Divinity School and the Institute of Sacred Music. Hi, this is Dominic Preziosi for the Commonweal Podcast, and as you just heard, we have Christian Wyman here. Well, not literally here, but he did speak with our assistant editor, Griffin Olenek, recently. And Griffin, why don't you tell us a little bit about how you came to talk to Christian for this episode? Yeah, so Christian Wyman is a poet. He's also a professor of religion and literature at Yale Divinity School. And I came to his work a couple years ago when I was thinking about my own faith journey in relation to poetry. And he's somebody that's very publicly wrestled with his faith, with the the relative lack of the presence of religion in uh, the poetic landscape in America. And so uh, he's also written a lot for the magazine. Uh, we featured in our first redesigned issue back in September, one of his poems that comes that, that's featured in the collection that he and I discussed, Survival is a Style, today. So I thought it'd be a great way to you know, bring him into the conversation. That's great. And so what did you, uh, well, I guess, did you learn anything new from Christian this time around? Or what did you sort of particularly enjoy about your conversation with him? Yeah, so... I guess the the best thing or the the thing I found most interesting was just hearing him read his poems. Um, it's one thing to go and uh, you know read them yourself and think about them, but hearing the sound actually takes you beyond the intellectual level and into the realm of physicality and musicality. That's such an important part of poetry. And then I guess also uh, for me, especially during this time of social distancing in the pandemic, it was great to hear from him about how his faith is something that he's still working on. Um, The prologue from the collection, Survival is a Style, ends with this line about him needing a form for failure, since failure is all he has. And I thought that was great because we're all sort of failing now or stumbling along. And and so it was very heartening to hear that, you know, that it's not just me. (laughs) (laughs) And surprisingly, or surprising for me, we talked a lot about humor and silence. Um, so he's actually a very funny person and a funny poet, and it's a really funny collection. And some of the things I had different readings of his poems that I would sort of propose to him and he would say, well, no, it's really just a joke. And it's funny because it's unexpected. We think of poets as being serious, but this is a very, it's a, in a way, it's an unserious collection about very serious things. Griffin, thanks. I'm, uh, thanks for doing this. And I'm, I'm really glad we're able to bring this to our audience today. Sure. So Christian, thanks so much for being with us here today on the Commonweal Podcast. Oh, thanks for having me, Griffin. You're formerly the editor of Poetry Magazine. You're a poet, and you're married to a poet. So tell us, how do you read poetry? And in what ways do you encourage others, your students, your friends, your family, to approach poems? Hmm. You know, I read it, I guess it depends on 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 the time that I'm in, how I read it. Sometimes I read it with real desperation, sometimes deliberation, sometimes it's a job. When it's a job, is kind of the worst. I try to make it uh, preserve that delight. 
um, my wife and I are talking about poetry all the time, from the time we get up in the morning until the time we go to bed at night. And I trust her opinion so much that she's she's my first reader always. If I'm talking to people who aren't comfortable with poetry, which certainly happens a lot, um, then I have very different methods. And I'm, I've learned over the years the kinds of poems that I can use to get people interested and and particular people, you know, one person might really respond to sound. One person might really respond to subject matter. And you sort of have to uh, read your room right. I don't think difficulty has much to do with it, but a lot of people are put off by what they conceive as difficulty. My kids, actually, when quarantine started, I found that I could get them to pay attention to poems that were really difficult in terms of sound. And, and I could just tell them, forget about what it means. And let's just... Uh, have fun with the sound. And, and we actually memorized some poems, uh, including Jabberwocky, uh, which they did while doing jumping jacks. And I, I find little kids can, can do that sort of thing, can get right into a poem without being so bothered by what it means. But the first thing I would say is to uh, enjoy the language and see if that takes you in. If it doesn't, forget about it. And don't be too hard on yourself and move on. I mean, I, I think people get stuck thinking that they have to like something because it's important or it's a poem by a poet they've been told is important. And, and I don't know, the way I read is I read a whole lot and, and I read pretty quickly. And then if something sticks, then I really focus and, and stop and pay, pay a different kind of attention to it. And so I think, I think delight has to be the key all the way through. Find out what delights you and, and go with that. Do you ever find yourself reciting poems aloud? All the time. I mean, that's why I do it, I think, so that I have those things uh, in my head when I need them. Also, just um, when I've got difficulties in my life, I found there, I've have found that there are certain poems that help me to unlock those difficulties. Say, in quarantine, I found myself at the beginning thinking over and over of lines from William Wordsworth, how strange that all the terrors pains and early miseries, regrets, vexations, and lassitudes interfused within my mind should e'er have borne a part, and that a needful part, in making up the calm existence that is mine when I am worthy of myself. I've got a lot of uh, vexations in my life and, and right now, and lassitudes, and, mm-hmm. and uh, uh, it's helpful to think of your best self being comprised of your worst self, in a way. Those things not just being sloughed off, but being integrated into who you are. Mm-hmm. And that seems to be such a theme in the new collection. What are some of the things that you find yourself needing to slough off or that you wish you could slough off and that poetry has a way of helping you do so? Well, I wish I were more at ease with existence than I am. Uh, I wish that I had... a clearer faith than I have. Uh, I recognize it in others. I wish I weren't so neurotic. And poetry has helped me survive those things, but also helped me to understand ways in which those things are um, just simply part of who I am. The things that are inextricably bound up with the things that I value about myself, uh, the ability to have faith at times, uh, the ability to make art, uh, the ability to love, all of those negative things seem to be bound up with, just as Wordsworth was saying, with the, with the good things. Hmm. I mean, what you say makes me think of the poem, uh, which is a funny poem, 
all my friends are finding new beliefs. It seems to get at that thing that you're talking about, like wanting to slough something off, finding a new belief system. Could you read that for us? Sure, sure. I, I, um, I wrote this poem, All My Friends Are Finding New Beliefs, when I was thinking about um, a couple of friends who were making big life changes, but I was also thinking of myself. I'm always thinking of the next thing that is going to somehow write my life or change my life uh, uh, in some way. And usually some small thing, not grand thing, but um, I, I think we live in a culture in which that encourages us to think that it, defining ourselves in some new way is possible, is always possible. So I began this poem sort of mocking that, and the poem then sort of turned itself on me and became something more serious. All my friends are finding new beliefs. This one converts to Catholicism, and this one to trees. In a highly literary and hitherto religiously indifferent Jew, God womps on like a genetic generator. Paleo, Quito, Zone, South Beach, Bourbon. Exercise regimens so extreme she merges with machine. One man marries a woman 20 years younger and twice in one brunch uses the word verdant. Another's brick-fisted belligerence gentles into dementia, and one, after a decade of finical feints and teases like a sandpiper at the edge of the sea, decides to die. Priesthoods and beasthoods, sombers and glees, high-styled renunciations and avocations of dirt, sobrieties, satieties, pilgrimages to the very bowels of being. All my friends are finding new beliefs, and I am finding it harder and harder to keep track of the new gods and the new loves and the old gods and the old loves, and the days have daggers and the mirror's motives and the planets turning faster and faster in the blackness and my nights and my doubts and my friends, my beautiful, credible friends. So one of the things I love about this poem is it starts off one way and then quickly becomes something else. And it's the way that you juxtapose serious things, entire belief systems like Catholicism with, you know, dietary practices. Why do you do that? What's the, what's the connection there? What, how, what do you see happening when people make these high style renunciations, as you call them, or these declarations? Well, I hope, I hope the poem ennobles them in some way. I don't. I certainly don't mean to simply make fun of them. Uh, obviously, the poem does make fun of our efforts to transform ourselves to, to some degree, but it ends with my friends being credible, not credulous. It's their passion for life that makes them credible. And the, the other thing I guess that your question makes me think of is, um, I mean, I think... Life is comic in some way. It's so mm-hmm. fundamentally comic. It's tragic too, but it's but there's a fundamental comedy to it. I wrote a whole long poem once about a character called Sirius because I found myself so self-serious. And so it's a whole sort of mock comic poem about this character who can't 
who can only be serious. Um, and so I am constantly trying, I'm not even trying, it's just a natural, um, natural inclination of mine to subvert that tendency to, to be too serious. I'm very moved by and very influenced by something that Peter Berger, the sociologist, once wrote, where he talks about the comic as having theological implications. It implies an order. Um, it always implies a different kind of order um, than the tragic. And so when you have comedy in a work like, I think even even Beckett, but he, I don't know that he would include Beckett, but when you have, let's use King Lear, say, when you have mm-hmm. the comic occurring in a play like King Lear, it's not there because of uh, moments of comic relief. That's not what it is. Uh, I think I think that in that play that those moments are actually implying uh, an entirely different order than uh, the action of the play seems to assert. And so I am very drawn to those uh, really, really severe juxtapositions of the comic and the tragic. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and we get a lot of different voices. Uh, Of course, we have your own. We've got the sort of the Texas backdrop. We've also got academic speech. We've got child speech. We have philosophers like Simone Weil, poets like Fernando Pessoa. And I guess there's a way in which silence becomes a voice too. Uh, yeah, there's a poem in here where, um, well, whatever the birds were, which makes me think of that a bit. It's, it, it's very short. It's good. It, it is like this, like a spirited theological colloquy between two people whose faith has failed. Two trees alders thrashed drastic in the gust that subsided so suddenly it seemed each had inhaled and stilled whatever the birds were that flitted back and forth between them then they made a silver seeming noise so in that one the silence of the argument becomes filled with the bird song uh, which manages to convey a much deeper meaning than Uh, all of the theological language was doing for those two people. Uh, I'm drawn to a lot of poets who manage to get right to the right to the edge of sound so that the silence begins to ramify like like a bell when it stops ringing. There's a kind of uh, another thing that I noticed throughout the collection is this kind of very pronounced sensuality particularly surrounding eating and drinking um, and I'm thinking even of the really, you know, highfalutin theological poem, which I think you published for the first time with us, Ten Distillations. That's right. Makes, yeah, that makes a kind of veiled reference to alcohol and the process of distillation. And I'm thinking of those two poems, uh, the two drinking songs. One of them was Up With a Twist. So I was wondering if we could read that and talk a bit about it. Sure. This poem's called Up With a Twist. The scriptural mentions of martinis were, he allowed, scant, and the thin place a diabolically ironic name for a bar. Yet one feels a certain spiritual imperative, as it were, from the earth, as it were, a call to a clarity one can taste and see. Wine, that unctuous embodied smell, being but water, and a touch of luck to butter the liver of a Christian. This is one of two places where I use my name as a kind of 
you know, <laughs> you could insert my name that my it could be my name there, which is being mocked. But no, actually, that that did occur to me as I was reading it. Uh, I wondered. I, I thought maybe he's making fun of himself here. Um, but I love that line: "A call to clarity, one can taste and see." And I was wondering what you meant by that. And it also made me wonder: what is the place of the senses in the spiritual life? Hmm. I. Uh... I feel like I'm always falling short of um, fully attending to my sensual experience. I feel like I'm uh, abstracted in my own head a lot. And so no doubt a lot of what I write is an attempt to wrench that back into focus. You know, Meister Eckhart says, the eye with which I see God is the eye with which God sees me. And I think what he meant by that was that, that we are meant to see God in the life around us, we're not. We have to see that clearly in order that we can be seen, so that it looks back at us. Reality looks back at us. Um, I think this poem, up with a twist, is in some. I think it is pretty mocking. I mean, on one level, it's it was it's simply a. Uh, I dislike wine, and I like martinis, and so <laughs> it's a straight up. It's a straight up poem about why martinis are better than wine. <laughs> Uh, but it then also it's also uh, the call comes from the earth and from and and offers a kind of clarity uh, rather than being beyond the earth from this institution or from this religion or wine as a sacrament. But that seems a little I don't know if just articulating like, like that seems a little juvenile and crude. Uh, it's really a joke. <laughs> right. <laughs> There's a second part to that poem called Neat. Uh, in which the whiskey ends with an experience. It's the last two stanzas are sip by sip diminishing. That's that's the pain. The whole of it all misting mercifully over like a peak lie poem I'd have looked free of meaning on the cold road to shoe. So it ends with an actual comparison to a contemplative moment from the Chinese poet Lai Po. Uh, so it has a, uh, it does have a kind of grace or revelatory quality to it. Hmm. So there's this kind of like gentle grace or holiness that your gaze and your ear uh, seem to have throughout the collection. And I'm, for me, I, I see that in one of the longest and most stylistically complex poems in the collection, uh, The Parable of Perfect Silence, which is really moving. Uh, it's about your relationship to your deceased father, but also about your spiritual journey. And it moves from this deep pain, um, this sense of not believing, not feeling anything, to a place of, of communion, or at least provisional communion. And you reach some theological conclusions. There's the line, uh, you say, the love of God is not a thing one comprehends, but that by which and only by which one is comprehended. What does what do you mean by that, or, or what does that that line mean to you? Um, well, I guess it's in a, it's a, there's a couple of different ways of thinking about it. One is like Meister Eckhart's statement: "The eye with which I see God is the eye with which God sees me." This takes it a little bit further. It has that same reciprocal motion. That is, we try to comprehend God, but can only be comprehended by God. But both actions are necessary. It's a classical Christian notion that, you know, if, if you think you've understand understood God, then it is not God. The moments when I have, when I understand what faith is, 
are in some ways passive. It's not quite right to say that they're altogether passive because I have such a will towards faith or towards God that it never it never stops operating in me. But the moments when I actually understand what it means, what it might mean, um, uh, to to experience the love of God, when I actually experience the love of God, are are passive moments, and I feel it flowing through me. And what it feels like then is not as if there's some being wrapping hold of me like a like a mother or something. What it feels like is if reality itself is looking back at me. And I think that's what that Meister Eckhart quote is, is reaching toward, the eye with which I see God is the eye with which God sees me. It, it is as if suddenly the will with which I have gone out into the world to see the attentiveness has been turned back to me and is looking back at me. And it is so much greater, obviously, than I could have ever have brought to it. Uh, and it is the only thing that ever sees us wholly and clearly and therefore forgivingly. This poem is also very much about forgiveness. And that those lines continue. It is like the child's time of pre-reflective being. And like that time, we learn it by its lack. It gets taken away from it. We learn that it exists. And then in moments, it is given back to us. I'm very drawn to uh, a lot of these writers who who are really doing apophatic theology or negative theology or uh, managing to um, they bring God to life by dis, by somehow sharply articulating what God is not. So if you can make these, it's almost as if you can if you can make these bars of what God is not. You know, say that not this, not this, not this, and then some some real volatile possibility of thisness begins to glow in between them in the uh, interstices. There's a line from a book that I wrote called My Bright Abyss, in which I, I say that sometimes God calls a person to unbelief in order that faith can take new forms. And one can hide behind that, of course, and and then never assent to those moments of faith or never never translate them into uh, moments of action in life. Um, but I do think it's true uh, that God is defined negatively until God makes himself known positively. Hmm. When we have those experiences of God, where we get a real intuition or experience of what God is, the language that we need, or that we, or that we think we need, actually, words like faith and belief, actually wither. We don't need to even need to reach for them. It is the thing itself that you're being given, which is why so many people are brought to, including myself, are brought to tears at that moment. I, mean, I never cry except in those moments when I feel the presence of God, and then I always do. I think it's why a moment of joy is always the call of God. It's always the, it's always the presence of God, and it's why a moment of joy can leave someone afterwards almost feeling bereft, um, because you feel like, oh, well, what what did that mean? What do I do with that? What what in the world is the rest of my life, if that's possible? Um, and it can be confusing if you don't have, and that seems to me the function of religion, to integrate those moments of intensity, those moments of mystical experience of God with all of the rest of life. One of the things I noticed in the collection 
is that most of the love poems, uh, if we can call them that, the love poems seem to me to be at the end of the collection. Um, and I'm wondering if there's a reason for that. And maybe I could ask you uh, if you could just read the poem, A Light Store in the Bowery, where you talk about different kinds of love. Yeah, I, I think you're right to notice that. that uh, that's very deliberate. A Light Store in the Bowery, some poems don't have occasions, real occasions. A lot of mine don't, but this one actually did. Uh, when my girls were much younger, we were in the Bowery one morning and um, it was cold and rainy and and like really cold and we needed to get out of it. And I think they must've been four or something. And I won't spoil the ending, but uh, this is my child that I'm quoting here at the end. And it is quite real. She asked me this. A light store in the Bowery. Some love is like a light store you slip inside only to escape the rain. Something to see, it turns out. The plasma lamps, mosque and lava, the elegant icicles of the chandeliers, shapes and shades so insistently singular that rooms can't help but happen around them, lives can't help but acquire choices and chances inside. Some love is like an old owner who, when a child walks in with her parents, can only imagine shatterings. And some love is like that child asking with an earnest and exemplary awe, where do they keep the dark? That's a moment in which the experience of light and of love overwhelms even the possibility of dark. It's like, where can they keep the darkness? And how, what, what is this? Where is the store where they keep the dark? I love this poem, and it, it seems to me that it's uh, indicative of, of what happens towards the end of the collection. And, and the thing that you seem to be gesturing at in this conversation, which is that you can come out of yourself. And maybe that's partly what this experience of God is, that other voices, in this instance, the voice of your daughter, they raise questions that we wouldn't think to ask. Um, they say things that, we wouldn't, that wouldn't occur to us to say. Hmm. And there's a kind of ease and a kind of peace, at least that I noticed, that, that comes in the lyric voice in this collection. And, and it seems like that, not that there is a point to, to any poem, but that's, that's like a good enough answer, or that's a good provisional answer for what is it like to be loved by God? What is it like to live and search for God? Um, is to realize that, like, you know, I, you know that I used to be in the Jesuits, and they used to always say, it's not about you. <laughs> um, there's, a, there's a way in which uh, this poetry collection, it starts off being about you and about the lyric voice and his beliefs and his hang-ups and frustrations. Um, but it ends in this really charmed way uh, where it's not about the speaker at all. It's about the way in which the speaker is himself spoken by another. Hmm. Yeah, I would not have been able to articulate that like that, but I, that's useful for me and heartening to me to hear it like that because I do think it's very true. I, I, I uh, read a book recently by uh, Richard Kearney, the um, Irish literary critic, philosopher, and theologian who writes about how we pass through atheism. Um, he doesn't quote Simone Weil, but he should have because she says that, that she talks about the necessary atheism as a purgative to, to get rid of all the false ideas we have about God so that we can get beyond that. And that's what Kearney's notion of anatheism is. But he says what is in the uh, absolutely essential element in that is the stranger. 
which is uh, like the other voice that you're talking about, that that is, there is something there that you must encounter, whether it's from another religion, from another um, race, from another outside of your, anything outside of yourself, unexpected, which is, which, which would, uh, it also is a, it's a challenge to you. It's a, it, it presents a challenge, but that encounter pushes you uh, further. Yeah, I mean, it's uh, it just it reminds me of the gospel. Uh, you're going about your business, and all of a sudden, there's somebody else asking you, you know, come and follow me. Yeah. Um, or it reminds me of that. Uh, there's that painting by Caravaggio that that Pope Francis loves, the calling of Matthew. You know, the tax collector. He's in the office, and and there's all this dark, and but then there's just this beam of light, and you know, calling him beyond, calling Matthew beyond. And and that's kind of the way that, I, I don't know, that's the, that's the feeling that I'm left with. Uh, as I read this book, I've read it a couple of times. I used to read it on the subway when you could still take the subway. And it's life, but it's it's also something beyond. And, and so that's that's just, just to say, I mean, that's what I loved about it. Um, that's that's what it meant for me. No, well, thanks a lot. That's, I mean, that's what I love in the poems that I read, What I the ones that I return to. So I'm I, I'm really glad to hear that about this book. So one of the things I love about the collection Survival is a Style is the details of home. And I'm thinking about, you know, the the hawk that you see roosted above roost, roosting above the proud houses of Hamden or the neighbors and playthings that appear what you say one pack one tick past implicit during a rainstorm. So uh, you know as as most of us are sitting at home maybe not noticing the same kinds of details that you're noticing. I wondered if, if you have any recommendations for us as we head into a long summer of, of being indoors. Uh, what are some ways that we can begin to see and, and hear like a poet? Hmm. Yeah, I guess I have a couple of answers. I mean, I, I get a lot of that from reading other people's poems. Spending, doesn't have to be a lot of time, but a little bit of time uh, really paying attention to poems enables me to pay attention to my own life in a different way. It, it uh, refreshes reality for me, and which I think is one of the great functions of art. And so that's certainly one way. Uh, I'm also lucky enough and challenged enough to have two 10-year-old twin girls who need lots of activities. And so we were always coming up with things for them to do. We bought a microscope and... Um, and are looking at things that we find in the yard and, and lab- labeling it all. And um, we've also become avid birders during this time. And, and we go out to the ocean and look at the, all the shorebirds and we've listed all the birds in our yard. And that's been a really important thing for us and binding thing for us. I do think that the pandemic, I mean, one of the things that, that maybe people don't notice as much um, is truly destructive of a certain kind of spiritual life because that that demands other people, and it's fine to sit in contemplation, and that's I mean I'm necessary element, and I'm I could do that for twelve hours a day. I'm so I'm so solitary, but that leads to despair. It leads to despair even for me, and so finding ways to connect with people has been a challenge for us. We actually have weekly, well, not weekly. We do it, I guess, every other week or so. But it's not, it's not on any absolute schedule. But we have church services. I put that in quotes because they have two kids too. With our neighbors, we share a backyard with our neighbors, and so we have these 
church services in the backyard, socially distanced. And we watch, we have church services around uh, our own church, sometimes here or or um, um, with a friend of ours who's a minister in Chicago. We arrange a service around his preaching. And um, so there are efforts at that, but that it would be crazy to pretend that um, that's not a real um, wound, um, not being around other people when you're worshiping God. And so... I think I think the pandemic is is great, and it, for me, it's great for enforcing concentration, and also for teaching my kids to attend to things and teaching us all to attend to things together. It's crazy to pretend that it's it's good in other ways, though. That that uh, the ways that it has taken us away from the world are damaging, mm-hmm. and I, I I really do worry about that for my kids. Yeah, I think that's a good way to say it. Well, Christian, it's been a pleasure speaking with you. Thanks so much for being on the Come and Will podcast. Great to talk to you too, Griffin. The Commonweal podcast is produced by assistant editor Griffin Olenek and the Commonweal staff in partnership with Sandberg Media. Wally Boudway composed the music. For the Commonweal podcast, this is Dominic Preziosi. 